welcome to Situation Positive, a positive community for those living with chronic illness. My name's Matt Cavallo. I'd like to introduce my host, Tara Tiggy. Hey, Tara, how are you doing? Doing good, Matt, doing good. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I've, I've got the allergy bug tonight, so uh, my, my throat's a little hoarse. Oh, that's not good to hear. Well, tonight we've got a special guest on. We've got Jonathan Hill, and he is actually the author of a graphic novel, Blood of the Paladin. Jonathan, how are you? Good. I'm doing well. Thank you. So I definitely want to hear more about your book later, but tell us about yourself. Well, uh, Tara, I was born with hemophilia A, or factor eight deficiency severe. Um, hemophilia is a genetic disorder uh, that is inherited. And when I was two years old, um, I bit my tongue and it wouldn't stop bleeding. And eventually they diagnosed me with severe hemophilia factor eight deficiency, uh, which was a huge shock to my family. Um, and this was in 1972, uh, which was kind of a, a turning point for the hemophilia community. Uh, they had just developed a brand new treatment and therapy um, that was made through um, by uh, developing concentrated factor eight. They could, they could freeze the, the blood and remove just the small portion that I needed, the part that I was missing that prevented my blood from clotting normally. See, everyone has all these clotting factors and they, they combine together these proteins. And when you cut your finger or you twist your ankle, it, we all bleed a little bit, but I don't have quite enough of one of them. And in fact, I have a very small amount and it was very difficult um, before factor concentrate was developed to treat patients with hemophilia. So um, this was brand new in 1972. And uh, that combined with the fact that there were new, a new treatment center model called the hemophilia, the comprehensive hemophilia treatment centers that were federally funded through the CDC that brought together not just uh, physicians that were specialists in hemophilia, but nurses and social workers and physical therapists and a whole team to really treat the whole patient. And it really changed the way um, uh, a person with hemophilia was living. Before that, uh, patients spent most of their lives in the hospital uh, and they didn't live very long. Their life expectancy was, I believe, about 16. Um, and when factor eight, uh, when concentrate came out, they were starting to be able to do normal things. Uh, they could start having normal lives. Uh, they could take this factor treatment wherever they were. It was still a shot, but eventually they could do it themselves through self-infusion. So this was a kind of a revolutionary period uh, in hemophilia treatment. Uh, and my family really embraced it. My parents really wanted me to have no limits uh, or at least to understand my limits and be able to manage them. Um, so I grew up, you know, kind of pushing the limits. I was a boy scout. Uh, I became an Eagle scout. I worked at a, a high adventure summer camp up in the Sierra mountains. Uh, but I still had lots of bleeds and I still spent a lot of time in the hospital, unfortunately. Um, but that was, that was, uh, that was part of my, my, my young life. And then um, in the early 80s, uh, unfortunately, we discovered that this wonderful, miraculous treatment 
the concentrate, the factor concentrate, unfortunately had been contaminated. Uh, it was made from pooled blood. They took thousands of people's blood together and spun it and just took out the small portion that we all needed um, from all those thousands of donors. And unfortunately, um, some of the viruses that were in the blood supply actually got into the medication and they infected us. So when I was 14 years old, I was told that I had the AIDS virus, uh, the um, HIV virus, which causes AIDS. And this was in 1984. Wow. <laughs> this was right at the beginning. Uh, they didn't have any treatments. There was a lot of fear. Um, people were scared. There was a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of uh, prejudice and uh, discrimination leveled at people with AIDS. Um, and it was scary. And I was a teenager. Um, and I thought, okay, that's it. My life's over. You know, what, what am I going to do? Like, you know, how, how am I going to, um, to live with this? And um, luckily I had this really close circle of friends and uh, we, we were kind of nerdy guys. Now this is the 1980s. So if you've watched shows like Stranger Things, you may have noticed there was these kind of nerdy kids that played this game that they loved so much in the 80s called Dungeons and Dragons. Well, we were those kids hanging out in basements, rolling dice and telling stories together. Uh, so I had this circle of friends that we were just passionate about this game. And we would get together once or twice or maybe even three times a week until all hours of the night rolling dice and telling stories. And we became super, super close. And we could create these worlds, these imaginary worlds um, that anything was possible. There were no disabilities there. There was just a group of heroes, four heroes banding together to defeat the evil necromancer, you know, casting their wizard spells or lifting their holy swords on their quest and they could just change the world. So when I found out about my HIV status, I made the difficult choice to share that information with my friends, uh, one at a time at first, which was super scary. Um, I didn't know what would happen, honestly. Um, I didn't know if they would say, I can't be your friend anymore, or they would be angry. I didn't know. So I told my best friend Ian one night at a sleepover after a D&D game, and I told him, I said, look, I totally get it. If we can't be friends anymore, it's okay. And his response blew me away and still does to this day. He said, we've always been friends. We always will be friends, you know, and I'm here for you to the end. And uh, that meant so much to me. And this group of friends, as I started to share it, they watched out for me when we'd be on the playground and people would say horrible things. Not that they knew because nobody really knew I had the AIDS virus trying to keep that quiet because it was scary. Um, but people, kids that at that time would say horrible things like, I hope you get AIDS and die or, you know, or something like that. They would say these horrible taunts on the playground and my friends would would stand up and say, you can't say that. That's horrible. I don't want you to hear you say that. It's because they knew it was hurting me, even though it wasn't public. 
those comments, those taunts were hurting me and they weren't going to stand for it. So, you know, that group of friends really have been through a lot of uh, challenges in my life. Um, so that was where we got started. Well, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. I, I was a child of the eighties as well. And I know how, how, uh, how tough it could have been. So I can't really imagine or, or relate to what you must have been through, but you know, you, you said something powerful, which was, you know, we were friends and we'll always be friends. And I think when people are diagnosed with a chronic illness, one of the things that they are most afraid of is telling other people um, about their condition because of the fear of losing those people. Now, I know this was a long time ago, but how, how did you approach that subject? I mean, especially back in the 80s, you know, there was so much fear and misinformation about the HIV virus. How would you even kind of begin to communicate that with people around you? Well, that's a great uh, question, Matt. Um, you know, you know, we had talked about my hemophilia before that. Most my friends knew about that. You know, I would even do shots uh, on weekends at somebody else's house. You know, so uh, we had I had shared some of my health challenges with them, and that had been a positive experience for me. Uh, and we had gotten closer through that. Um, but there were a couple things that really helped me. Um, the first was um, around that time uh, that I found out I was uh, HIV positive. In the, in the public media, there was a lot of stories about another young man with hemophilia that was two years younger than me, uh, who was living in Indiana. His name was Ryan White. Uh, and he had been diagnosed with the AIDS virus as well. And that information had gone public. And the people in his town were preventing him from going to school because oh, wow. they were afraid that he would give the virus to their children. Uh, so he and his family went on a huge public campaign and they got a lot of support. They had like Michael Jackson and Elton John and all these people coming to stand up and say, you can't do this to this, this young man, you know, and uh, eventually he was able to go back to school. Um, so as scary as that was, because frankly, that could be me. That was part of what I was thinking was if the information got out, it could, it could easily be me. But I also looked to uh, Ryan and his mother, especially what I saw, I didn't know him personally, but what I saw on the media and said, if they've got the courage to do this, I can tell my close friends, you know, I mean, look what Ryan's doing. Look what um, Mrs. White is doing. You know, this is just, so there was that. And then the other interesting thing was uh, when I played Dungeons and Dragons, my favorite character to play, uh, because in Dungeons and Dragons, you make, each of you make a character that you play like Bilbo Baggins or like Gandalf the wizard. You make your own character with the dice and all this stuff. And my favorite character to play was the noble knight uh, called a paladin. Uh, you know, these were knights that were dedicated to, a, to a, an oath or a, an order that they live their life by. And because of this commitment of this bond to their, to their beliefs, uh, they had received divine powers and they could do amazing things. Uh, but 
that was because they lived by this oath that they took. And, you know, if I could, if my paladin, Baitor, could stand up to the necromancer in the lava cave and, and not have any fear, I could do it too. So, so there was some of that too, you know, this, these are the, the heroes I looked up to. So, so between my fantasy, um, my imagination, and then these real world inspirations, those were two big factors that helped give me the courage to tell my friends. And so you're able to start talking to your friends about it. Mm-hmm. Was it hard to, and at this point, you're starting to probably be a teenager, right? And you're starting mm-hmm. to get um, the thing that all teenagers get, the hormones and stuff like that. As you started to maybe enter into um, teenage and young adulthood and you're living with this chronic illness and, and you know, I mean, we're probably in the late 80s, early 90s, a lot of fear, a lot of misinformation. When you wanted to go outside of your friend group and maybe, you know, start dating and stuff like that, how would you approach the subject there? Well, that's a good question. And the answer was, for a long time, I didn't date. (laughs) Uh, Because that just seemed like a simpler solution. Uh, Because I wasn't ready to share that information with, uh, with uh, someone I was dating or a potential partner. Uh, and I felt very strongly that uh, any potential partner needed to understand the risks and understand what was involved. And that's a big, a big burden. And especially in the mid eighties, you know, sure. We were talking about safe sex then and you could do it, but it was a fairly new concept. And, not to mention I was what, 15, 16 years old. So the idea of talking to a girl about using a condom was super, super scary. Uh, so, uh, you know, I just kind of hung out with my fr- guy friends. Um, the other thing uh, that uh, happened is we started uh, going to parties. And so I started experimenting a little with alcohol and um I found out that I could be kind of the life of the party if I wanted to be, and then I didn't have to date anybody. Uh, So that was something I messed around with for a while. Um, And it was a choice. Uh, I'm not sure it was the best choice, but, you know, um, I still kind of maintained a lot of my morals and the things that I felt were important, and I wasn't going to deviate from those. But I could just be the goofy guy. And that was easy enough to do, especially in late high school. So that was another thing I did do at that time. That's good. It sounds like it, especially around your friends, you're able to be just like very comfortable and like yourself. Um, And with your friends, like you, I know whenever you talked about playing Dungeons and Dragons, you kind of would light up. Um, So like, talk to me more about that. And like, how did you go from like having your situation and then being able to kind of turn it to something positive? Yeah, so... um, you know, one of the things I, I mentioned earlier is, you know, one of the things I often say about hemophilia is it's, it's uh, a lifelong journey. And I think a lot of people with serious chronic illness knows exactly what I'm talking about. You know, it's all about, for me, it's all about developing strategies and tools to overcome the obstacles because you don't know what you're going to be facing next. Uh, is, it a, is it another muscle bleed? 
Is it an abdominal bleed? Is it AIDS and HIV? Is it ultimately hepatitis C, which was another virus that I was exposed through the same blood products to, which ultimately destroyed my liver and required me to have a liver transplant three years ago. So, you know, my journey kept on going and there were kept being constant setbacks. But, you know, one of the things I started to do was trying to develop these strategies or these tools to help me uh, cope or overcome or just keep going and keep living. Um, so, you know, one of the things I found with, with Dungeons and Dragons was if I was stuck in a hospital in a lot of pain uh, on Christmas, because that often happens, spending the holidays in the hospital happened way too many times, um, I could still open that doorway in my mind to my imagination. And I could sit there and I could dream up the next adventure that I was going to take my friends on. I could think up the monsters that they might have to fight. You know, I could develop this elaborate story about going to see the, uh, the village historian to learn the secrets of uh, this mystical portal and then being ambushed by a bunch of dark elves, assassins crashing into the windows. I could dream all that stuff up in my hospital bed. And then the next time I was back at home with my friends, we could play it, you know? So there was that, you know, the, the idea that I could use my imagination as a way to escape um, or drown out the pain or escape or drown out the loneliness or the isolation. And frankly, I think we can all relate to that these days. I think one of the reasons I think Dungeons and Dragons is so getting a big resurgence right now. It's very, very popular. It's because it's something we can do in the pandemic. You know, <laughs> we can tell a crazy story together and roll some dice even over Zoom. And, you know, it doesn't matter where everybody is. And that can be really important. So that was one of, uh, of, the, of the real positive things I learned, you know, and eventually I turned that into writing. You know, I went on to college. Um, I got a master's and I, you know, became quite a good writer, um, which ultimately transformed into this graphic novel that we'll, we'll be talking about shortly. But, you know, I was able to tell my story through the written word and to realize it could impact people, you know, that maybe it'll bring them some hope or encouragement. So that's been a, a big thing for me is, is just seeing, um, uh, the, the benefit that creativity and imagination can bring to your life, whether it's gardening or music or cooking or writing or just watching movies, you know, uh, there's lots of ways to, to try and go beyond the pain and find that place. Yeah. So. Something you said earlier that like I actually wrote it down because I liked it so much. You were talking about being in that kind of imaginatory state. <laughs> And you said anything is possible and that there's no disability in your imagination. There's no fear. Like, I think that's awesome. And you clearly, you, you use that in imagination and then you turned it into what you now have as your book. And that's amazing. Can you, can you tell us about your book? Yeah. So um, I, I alluded to it a little bit, Tara. Um, so I've been through a lot of uh, challenges in my life and um, you know, I, I had, I was born with hemophilia. I had to face the HIV and AIDS virus. 
I also had to face the hepatitis C virus in the eight, in the late nineties, early two thousands. And um, that virus um, ultimately destroyed my liver uh, and gave me advanced liver disease. And I um, had to wait um, for 10 years. I was on the liver transplant list waiting for a liver transplant. And um, it's not a place you want to be. Uh, there's so many people waiting for organs and there's just so few available. You know, so many people die on the wait list. And the only way you're going to get one is it, you have to be really sick. So you, the sicker you are, the, you know, the higher you are on the list. But if you're too sick, then you can't survive the process. So it's kind of this space. So, um, you know, as I was really, really sick, I was becoming very isolated, just my circle of friends and my family. Um, and then I started, you know, when I was kind of in and out of the hospital all the time with these uh, liver symptoms, um, I started just kind of writing some blogs, you know, just kind of putting my thoughts down, you know, whatever came into my head, you know, what, what was I feeling, you know, or what, uh, what was this experience like? And um, I started sharing those on social media and I was just amazed by the response I got, you know, a lot of encouragement, a lot of support from people around my life or in the, you know, some of them not that close, you know, kind of in the exterior uh, and then and some other folks that I didn't know that well that were just talking about how it inspired them. And I, I, I realized how important it was to write all this down. So I just kept writing. I kept writing. Uh, and through the whole process, through the liver transplant, and then afterwards, and I brought it together, all those pieces into kind of a memoir. And I shared that memoir with uh, some other folks, uh, some people at Believe Limited, um, this digital media company out in uh, it focuses on uh, bringing attention to the bleeding disorders community out in LA and BioMarin. And I, I shared the idea with them. I said, you know, it would be really great if we could share this story, you know, with the community, especially the bleeding disorders community, but beyond that. And I'm not really sure how to do it. And one of the folks on in that meeting said, you know what, looking at all this stuff you've written, it's a lot of talk about this fantasy world, the real world and the fantasy world. I think this would be great visually. I wonder if we could do a graphic novel. So out of that, we, I worked with them and I transformed the, um, uh, the memoir into a script, you know, like a screenplay. And we hired two graphic, uh, two artists um, to illustrate the, uh, the book illustrators and one of them focused on the real world events and then the other one drew all the fantasy world events kind of like uh the movie uh birdman i don't know if you guys have seen that movie where uh um michael keaton is uh he's having conversation with his character that he played in the movies uh you know and that kind of you know real world fantasy world colliding kind of stuff so it was super fun to bring it all together. And it just really kind of took off from there. That's awesome. So like, where, where can we go to find your book or like, how do we, how do we read your book? Yeah. So the book just came out a couple months ago. Um, and we have a website, www.bloodofthepaladin.com. If you go there, you, there's a, uh, 
a, a place where you can request a copy and you can sign up to get a free copy of the graphic novel. They'll send it out to you. Um, if you're in the bleeding disorders community, I 100% encourage you to do it. If you're not and you're just interested, you want to learn more about this, you love Dungeons and Dragons, or you know, you just want to learn more about my journey, go there, request a copy. Absolutely, get yourself a copy. Uh, there's more information about the project there. Uh, there's a, a neat trailer uh, that kind of shows you a little bit about what you're going to be seeing in the graphic novel. Uh, and then we also have a podcast series, and I don't know the address for that, guys. I'm really sorry. <laughs> oh, so, no, never apologize for being awesome. Uh, uh, but I was uh, actually just checking out your podcast, and I'll make sure that I share all those links in, in our blog. Um, but how are you doing today? We we got into this real big health journey, right? Uh, from 19. 70s all the way up to 2021 you've been uh living with these various chronic conditions how are you feeling today jonathan well you know uh i have to say it is a little bit surreal uh because after the liver transplant i actually don't have hemophilia anymore wow <laughs> uh it turns out that the protein that i am missing uh, the factor eight is produced in the liver. So when you get a liver transplant, mm. you actually it can basically cure your, your hemophilia. So I no longer have bleeding episodes. Um, now, I still have all the arthritis and joint damage and other health problems that were caused by the hemophilia, but I just don't have those current bleeding problems that I was having before. And it was really hard to accept for a while. I mean, you know, I didn't realize, you know, that I not only had I learned how to uh, accept, embrace, and manage my bleeding disorder, uh, but it was kind of part of who I was. So there was a lot of it. There was an a, a identity question going on for me, you know. Do I want to give that up? You know, do I want to lose my connection to the community? Do I still belong there? Um, you know, and the, the answer is yes, they absolutely want me there. You know, uh, you know, they, they all, one of my good buddies, uh, talks about, he says, well, you still have the hemophilic limp. So you're, <laughs> you're still part of the club, but his point is well taken. You know, I've lived this life. I, I live with, with hemophilia for 47 years, so I'm still part of the community, but you know, then there are other things, uh, you know, I have to take really good care of this new liver. This is an amazing gift. Just, just so amazing. Um, I've actually had a chance to meet the uh, donor's family, uh, which, which is an emotional uh, event, just very powerful. And, you know, I am so grateful for that gift and I want to live it to the fullest. So I'm trying to take really good care of myself. I'm swimming like four days a week. Uh, like competitive amounts, like a mile every time, you know, I'm trying to keep in really great shape. Um, I have some other chronic conditions that are related to the medications I'm on because of the transplant. Frankly, uh, the pandemic is, is kind of dangerous for me too. Um, I'm on immunosuppressant drugs, which... I was, was wondering about that because when you get a transplant... Uh, you're on a lot of that uh, 
immunosuppressant drugs. Was, did this happen well in advance or are you still on those treatments? Yeah, you have to take those for the rest of your life. Oh, um, you do? Now, I'm on fairly low dosage now. They start you off super high because they yeah. don't want an, an organ rejection, as you can imagine. You also want steroids at that time. It's a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, but they, they eventually taper that all down. But you still have to take um, uh, Prograf, the one immunosuppressant, forever, basically. In fact, they measure every month um, my viral, my um, the blood level of, the, of that medication to make sure the troughs are still safe and that my organ will still, you know, my body won't reject my organ. That's, that's what they're trying to prevent from happening. But they honestly don't know. Um, they know that transplant patients, because of these medications, are at a greater risk for, for, for severe versions of COVID-19. So, um, you know, they were very concerned and I was very careful, but I, you know, I, um, it's been really hard to get vaccines. I, I now have had two doses of the, the of uh, the Moderna vaccine, which is great, but Did you they, experience any side effects because of your immune suppression or how are you feeling from that? Actually, the second dose was bad. I, I had a really bad reaction. I, I was sick for two or three days. I had the shake. I had the uh, the chills and, and kind of um, achiness all over, fever, dizziness, and a little bit of GI issues. So um, it eventually went away. Uh, my biggest concern right now is um, there's some early research that is showing the immune response in transplant recipients is a little bit lower than the average person to the, to the vaccine. You know, that the, the vaccine get, causes an immune response in the body, that's what it does. Um, and they're a little bit concerned about that. The, the data is still very preliminary, so they haven't made any recommendations, but I could definitely see us having to have at least a third dose or possibly a booster, um, not in the not too distant future, so yeah. You know, we, we keep unraveling the story here. It, it, we learned a lot, you know. Um, we started with hemophilia. We, we went through HIV into hepatitis and, and now to the liver transplant. I feel like we could just uh, go on, but, um, you know, I, I, wanna, I wanna wind this one down, but we definitely, uh, you're a friend of the show now, so we definitely <laughs> want you to come back anytime because Quite frankly, I want to talk to you about the transplant. I want to talk to you about hepatitis. I, I want to learn all this stuff. But, uh, but Jonathan, uh, thank you so much uh, for coming to our show today. Um, did you have fun? I absolutely had fun. So uh, thanks for having us. It's good to find another kid of the 80s uh, to talk about all this stuff with, right? Well, and, and uh, we, can, we can definitely talk about that we could talk about bad music and bad fashion all day long so uh, he's Jonathan Allen Hill uh, author of the book The Blood of the Paladin uh, and I can't wait to share all that information on our blog um, so make sure you read that and visit all those links um, and Jonathan thank you so much for stopping by today well thank you everybody uh, for letting me share my story I really appreciate it it's such a great story and uh, we're going to be following you and, and uh, we're going to be, you're part of our community now. So we're going to keep sending good thoughts your way. Um, 
Thank you all for listening. My name is Matt Cavallo, and on behalf of Tara Tingey, uh, thank you for tuning in to Situation Positive. We look forward to bringing you another inspirational story soon.